0: Hello, and welcome to this greatly delayed episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I am your co-host, Dave Kale, and I just want to apologize to everyone who's tuning in live. Um, We just had some really, really important backstage discussion about (laughs) nothing that we had to discuss, and that's why we're starting at 7.40 p.m., or, well, Pacific time, 10.40 p.m. Eastern time, much to the chagrin of uh, several of the other people on the podcast tonight. Uh, and to those people would a perfectly be
1: civilized time. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. Those people would be the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, as always, the uh, most hated Tolkien person on the Internet now.
1: <laughs> hey, you know, I, it's people have mostly been forgetting about this now. It's most oh, good. Thank the, God. The people I, I haven't gotten yelled at in, on Twitter in days now. So, I, you know, I, I'm feeling thank God these
2: days. Yes, you're yeah, doing yeah.
0: you're doing good. That,
2: that's how the Internet works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> nobody like short... knows who, uh, who Ed is anymore yeah. that was so short
0: fortnight oh my goodness and uh, joining us as always are our showrunners Marie and uh, Nick from 10 years ago <laughs> excellent <laughs> <laughs> Uh, see uh, inside uh, joke have, that was an have, inside zoom
1: joke <laughs> we have a, we have a, a, a viewer Troy Hillman who's just uh, uh, found us recently and has been catching up he's in season two right now uh, so that's awful handy Troy we might uh, might need your help remembering what we said back in season two <laughs> as I usually forget so uh, <laughs> it it's, it's possible that that will come up uh, so we'll see yeah um, uh, anyway, wow! You started it after catching up on exploring the Lord of the Rings. You are a marathon runner, Troy. That's kind of amazing. Um, if you catch up on both of those things, there should be like that goes beyond merit badges. That goes to like trophy case kind of <laughs> kind, kind of thing. So, yeah, very good. Anyway, yeah. So tonight we're gonna finish the Baron and Luthien arc. We've been so this is our third discussion, uh, fourth fourth discussion of. Uh, Baron and Luthien, um, and as we've gone through, we got through mostly through Angband last time, um, and we um, we're going to be focusing mostly on the end game here tonight. Looking at, um, in particular, of course, obviously, well, there's the return to Doriath, which is really important. We get the reconciliation with Thingol, and that's really the uh, the sort of climax of Thingol's arc there. Um, and then we're going to have, of course. The hunt for the wolf and the Mandos thing. We barely even talked about Karkaroth last time for all of my discussion of, like, uh, not wanting to be awash in wolf wolves and dogfights last time. Uh, we didn't even get to Karkaroth, so um, we'll talk about Karkaroth a little bit. And then, of course, the trip to Mandos. And then, very interestingly, how do we end this season exactly? Where do we end this season and what happens at the end of it? So, that is where we're going to go here tonight. Uh, a couple quick announcements. First, the uh, first is MythMoot. MythMoot 9 registration, June 23rd, 26th. Um, we're going to be somewhere in the vicinity of Leesburg, Virginia. Um, we're actually, so it, that for those of you who don't know why I'm joking about not knowing the location of our conference that's happening in two months. Um, it's because there's been a, an emergency change because our normal venue has been, um, Uh, What's the word? Commandeered. That's the word. Commandeered in order to house uh, a whole bunch of uh, uh, children, refugees from Afghanistan, which is awesome. We're like hugely supportive of the, in fact, uh, uh, at Signum, we've been talking about, um, um, you know, like things we can do for the children now living uh, in the National Conference Center where we normally have our conference. Um, I mean, other than like, you know breadcrumb packets to help them find their way around. But anyway, um, it's, um, so, so we've been moved. We're actually very, very, very close to confirming our venue. It's right nearby. Um, I can tell you, it's going to be quite near to Dulles airport. Dulles airport was always the closest airport to Mithmoot. It's the closest one to Leesburg. Um, and we're going to be even closer to, uh, Dulles. So, um, if you're, if for people who are not flying in, it won't be a huge, difference. If you're driving there, it's not going to be a big difference uh, in distance. If uh, you're flying in, it's going to be even easier than it would have been otherwise. Um, uh, You'll probably be able to probably be able to skip the uh, the Uber from uh, from the airport. So um, anyway, so that's going to be uh, uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Hope that you can join us for Mythmoot. And, of course, the space program. Uh, if you go to org slash space, you can see we've got 14 modules that we're doing in May. Space has been uh, doubling in size uh, each of the last several months. Um, As far as number of students involved, our our number of modules has been increasing and increasing. We've doubled that in the last two months. Um, So uh, anyway, lots of uh, excitement. Uh, Really, really fun modules that are happening. You can learn uh, Tolkien's invented languages. Uh, You can learn, uh, uh, you know, we have a bunch of Tolkien uh, uh, separate Tolkien classes, uh, Tolkien lit classes. Um, you can learn other languages like Old English or Old Norse or Latin, uh, Greek. Uh, we've got, uh, you can learn Klingon. Uh, we've got creative writing classes. We've got all kinds of things. So um, really, really fun set of modules coming up here in May. Uh, and I hope that you will consider joining us in space, which has been a very great deal of fun. Um, Alright, now back to the map, as always. Um, okay, so this time, it's not that I'm noticing something I haven't noticed ever before. But I'm just looking at the forest of Neldoreth, which I always found a little bit odd. Like, Neldoreth and Regian, you know, how they have the, the... Like, why is Doriath... I mean, there's a river. Okay, like, there's, like, the part of the forest north of the river and the part of the forest south of the river. But it always felt to me a little bit strange that they have different names like that. Like, are they... Very different
3: in quality, right? I don't, I don't know. They're they're composed of different types of trees, right? I mean, so, that would so make the, sense. The, the woods would have different characters, yeah. Because right. Right. Aragon would have the the hollies, mm-hmm. and Neldoreth is mostly beeches,
1: right? And uh, Brethil is mostly mostly birches,
3: right? It's either birch or beech, depending or beach. on which yeah. translation you go with from Tolkien. Right. Like he kind of said, either or. For some right, film, right. film we
2: decided purchase. purchase. So. Right, right. That's I'm why I remembered the
1: <laughs> pictures from our, our, our sets from last season. So, yeah. 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 Do, cool. we anyway,
2: know, do we know for sure, like, is it laid out somewhere what exactly the girdle of Melon, Melian encompasses? Like, I've always been pretty sure that it encompasses the forest of Neldoreth and the forest of Regian but I'm not 100% sure how much of it how much of that is true and how far beyond the eaves of the forest it goes in places or does it just hug the border of the forest you know
1: yeah it's a great, it's a good question i mean there is a description in uh um the the everyone's favorite you know bound yeah. and its realms chapter and is where is the bit i i the, the the bit i remember most clearly off the top of my head um, is the the bit of forest that is within the girdle, so that Melian can have a part of like the entire like the the River Syrian could be entirely inside the the girdle at one point, right? Because like, it mostly follows the River Syrian, it, isn't it? This one down here by the Fens of Syrian, um, that the girdle sticks out to over there, so that there's a there's a piece of the River Syrian that's completely... Inside. That's the passage that I remember most clearly from that description. But, um, uh, but yeah, I don't think... Like, Bretho is not in it, of course. Um, Nan Elmoth is not in it. But, yeah, like, how close do you have to get to the trees before you hit the girdle? You know, is it, is it after you've entered... The trees? Is it like a hundred yards off? You know, like it's—I, I, you know, I—is I, it a couple of miles off? It could be, right? We don't really—we never get that kind of. Um, it's actually a really cool example of another, a kind of decision that a visual adaptation forces upon you. That the girdle extends around, you know, the perimeter of this forest or whatever, but like, what does that actually? What does it actually mean what does it actually look like you know as you're as you're approaching it you know if you ha- have a little you know um you know uh magical like geiger counter right and you're walking closer you know like when does it start clicking right you know when do you um when do you when are you under its effect um and uh and yeah we don't really know i myself like to imagine that it would be... now. that's interesting. Uzaro is saying, um, the first thing it ebbs and flows, um, that it might not be a static thing. And that seems possible. Um, myself, I've always associated it with the edge of the tree. Like, you have to go into the trees, right? That, like, when you pass into the yeah. trees... Um, the, mostly for, for two reasons, and these are not, like, reasons support this explicitly from the text, but... Um, one, because of the association between the forest and fairy in traditional fairy tales, right that, yeah. like you know the, and the other is just the boundaries right like that it yeah it would seem weird to have it on one side or uh, like that it would match a boundary like when you cross like when you step between the trees now that's when you encounter the girdles. what feels most intuitively to make sense um, I mean it would make Entering sense like fairies. defensively to be like yeah. you know a perimeter of 150 yards off is when it starts to really hit you and you can but uh, but I don't think that doesn't seem to be how these magical things work
0: really
2: boundaries very very often are um especially in celtic myth you see a lot of stuff about yes not only boundaries um physically but also temporally like they mm-hmm. make a big deal of the time between times you know, yes. in evenings and mornings and any time that the season changes or any time yep. there's any, yep. we're moving from this to that. Yes. they you know, they see that as a, as a kind of place where the, the fairy world kind of dimples into the real world a little bit. Right. And so that right. would kind of make sense, I guess. Right. Exactly. Wondering if there it was anything. I mean, I, I, I just pulled up that exact uh, quote that you were talking about and I believe that the area is called Nivrim The West March. Great oak trees grow there. So yet another part another different type of trees in a right. forest. There you go. But yes. not
1: just mixed in. They're separate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is, is this Nivrim down here? South of the D in Doriath?
2: um yes yes it does it says that an old dorian lay east of syrian safe for a narrow region of the wood of woodland between the meeting of taglin and syrian and the mirrors of twilight right Um, okay yeah
1: so this whole stretch that includes the d in the middle of it yes yes okay
2: right yep
1: okay anyway But that's not what we came here to talk about tonight. What we came here to talk about tonight is the story thus far. So um, a brief... We don't have to review this too much because we've reviewed this first one several times now, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think we pretty much remember this starting off establishing the necromancy and the taking of Tulsirian at the very beginning, setting up Baron and Kelgorman Kurofin and Luthien, then focus on Baron and the drama with the death of his father and the destruction of the, and, Gorlim, and with, but which Thorn is going to organize the Gorlim deception and all that stuff. Right. Um, uh, and then episode three is the, uh, his flight, right. Um, Baron's flight. So we've got Baron in Dorthonian on his own, and then eventually him getting down with much, many trials and tribulations. Uh, and then episode four, the Tenuvial episode, right? Just following Baron and Luthien. Bottle episode from Tenuvial to through Baron leaving the court on his setting out on his quest, possibly ending with Melian and Thingol's like Melian, the O-King speech. Um, uh, you have devised cunning counsel. Um, anyway, so that's episode four. Episode five, six, and seven, we spent a, a, a good deal of time kind of working through this. Episode five, We've got Baron getting Finrod's help, Finrod and Baron being captured in episode six, and then um, the rescue in episode seven. Right? So then we have Luthien imprisoned in the treehouse in episode f- She uh, She leaves. Okay, wait, hang on. Remind me how this goes. She she. We see her put in the treehouse in episode five. We see her leave the treehouse. Does she arrive at... At at Nargothrond in episode six, and then is imprisoned and leaves at the end of episode six, right? So her arrival and departure from Nargothrond frame episode six in that way, right? Um, And then episode seven, she and Huon show up uh, at the tower, and we have the rescue of Baron and, uh, well, Finrod's corpse. And, um, right. Okay. Um, meanwhile, Kelgorm and Kurufin, um are ousted at the beginning of episode eight. Right, we have the return of escaped prisoners, and we have the outrage against Kelgorm and Kurufin, and they get banished. And relatively swiftly, they meet uh, Baron and Luthien and attack Baron and Luthien, and we have the whole leap of Baron, um, uh, Huon's second speech. No, that happens later. That's not here. Um, Just, But what I'm thinking of is Huan's final defection from Kelegorm. That's the big Huan action here. Um, Episode 9, then, is... This is the one that we ended up talking at the end of last time. um, Talking about the sort of how Baron and Luthien's relationship works. Why is it that he doesn't want to bring her along with him, what's going on there um uh, why does he then agree to do it we talked a good bit about the disguises, the Drogluon and Thorin Gwethel disguises and how we didn't really want to skin Thrang- Thranduil and wear his pelt um and you know strap it on to Baron and teach him how to run like a like a wolf and, and all that kind of thing um right and um And then we had Dairon's, and we decided what to do with Dairon. We decided to give Dairon a job, and that Dairon's job was going to be that he was going to encounter the eagles. Um, He's on his way to Angband because he alone really both understands, has both the understanding and respect for Luthien to... Uh, know exactly where she's going and believe she's going to get there. So he's heading straight for Angband. He doesn't get there, certainly doesn't get there in time, but he meets the Eagles of the Mountains, and that's how they're made aware of the situation. So then we have episode 10, the Angband episode, which is another sort of uh, uh, focused bottle episode, right? The whole thing is an Angband from their arrival at the beginning. The... Uh, dancing before Morgoth scene, which is not sketchy, as we discussed, the uh, cutting of the Silmaril from the Iron Crown, and then the confrontation with Karkaroth. And we did, mostly didn't talk about the confrontation with Karkaroth because it's pretty well blocked out in the book as it is. There's not too much to add um, to, the, uh, to the... I mean, I it's...
2: Would be on my
1: short list of like scenes that we don't need to do much to in order to really get it ready for uh, for screen presentation.
3: Exactly the the way it's the way the confrontation works, you know.
1: Yeah.
3: As written, the only thing for the adaptation is why Morgoth has a giant wolf at his gate, which we. Um, but now that we've done the whole thing. Do we have any different feelings? Um
1: No, apart from the fact that I'm quite this is another one of the reasons why I wanted to remove the Sauron's going to disguise himself as a big huge wolf in order to fulfill the prophecy mm-hmm. angle with Huan. Because um as it is, you know, for reasons I explained last time, I don't, f- I, I don't find that compelling theater on screen. Um, but more importantly, if both he and Morgoth do that, right? Like, if they, you know, first of all, it seems a little bit strange that, like, so much of the strategic thinking of all of the big bad guys are designed in working around the dog, right? Um, that, like the. the, the that Huan's existence has shaped the policies of Morgoth and Sauron right. to the extent that it does seems weird by itself, right? But secondly, that you know, to give first to Sauron this kind of Witch King and Eowyn-esque encounter, right? I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna attack you confidently because I believe that I'm, I know how this prophecy is supposed to be fulfilled, thing, right? and then it doesn't pan out and then we have Morgoth basically doing exactly the same thing, except he's kind of right this
2: time except
1: it doesn't work that way or whatever anyway, like, it's it's um uh
2: and of course Morgoth having defeated the m- mightiest living elf is like yeah, but that Huon though you know? Yeah, I have like, to, make, it's a I have to weird. make
1: special preparations for the dog. Yeah, yeah. No, it is weird. I mean, I find that a little weird. Um, um, or, or at least, again, I think it would look weird on screen. I mean, there's a way in which it... Um, repetition is an interesting thing, isn't it? Like Repetition works so much better in prose narrative than it works on screen. Right? I mean... It really does, <laughs> I think.
2: Repetition um, on screen works in for a very there's, like there's ways to do repetition where it's powerful. Um, right. For example, uh, a really really good example of repetition in film is um, in Big Hero Six. I don't know if you've seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, at the in the very beginning, so Baymax is a, a robot who is a robot nurse. That the main character's brother has uh, has built, and uh, the way that you turn off the robot nurse to say is to say, "I am satisfied with my care." Okay. And so, in um, in the beginning, the you know the main character is introduced to the robot, and you know his brother tell who built and says, "Oh, you have to tell him I am satisfied with my care," and then he'll shut down. And then so that so we set that up right. And then, right before the third act turns uh, turns on, the, the the brother dies in the first act. Right, the the creator of the robot, and the main character, is really grief stricken, and he um, winds up watching a video a video feed from the robot's perspective of the of the attempts at creating him. Over and over and over and over again, and the bro- the brother when he finally gets it, it gets it right and the robot is working. He, he says, "I am satisfied with my care," and his face disappears. Right, and so again we're re- reinforcing that. And then at the very end, the robot has to sacrifice himself to save the main character. And the main character is no, no, like, "No, you're like the only part of my brother I have left," and and right. the robot says it says, "No, you have to say it so that I can." I can deactivate myself so i'm not going to be floating out here right. in nothingness forever and so the main character has to say i'm satisfied with my care
1: right
2: and then that's the last you see of him right and so that kind of repetition is extremely powerful right what's less powerful is if you do the same thing repeatedly at the same time in the same place
1: especially if it's not working right yes like yes. like you do the thing and it doesn't work and somebody else comes and says, hey, wait, I have an idea. Let's d- do it again and hope right. it works this time. Right? But I mean, it's Yeah, but, but slightly. But this time I'm sure it will probably work. I mean, again, it's there's there's a yeah. Anyway, so but I feel better about this. I mean, Karkaroth, we need Karkaroth. Yeah. Like we're not. Then I mean, the plan was never to change Karkaroth or to undo the prophecy, just not to kind of undermine it in a sense by. Playing that chord one too many times, so
2: I'd like to do a a cryptic setup for it in episode two. When when um, I mean in the scene, the point of which for is for Karkaroth, to, You mean? Yeah, yeah. To yeah. to give Sauron the fiefdom of Dorphonian, right? Just to have like just a little bit, just a little. Hey, here's the thing. Right. Might be important later. Right. Who knows? Right. So yeah, so we're. Are we ever going to... Is
1: Karkaroth a surprise? How do we set up Karkaroth? Because that—that that is... I don't think we ever did... I mean, you yeah. mentioned that just now, Mariana. I don't we, think we ever did actually decide that, did
2: we? Uh, yeah, we did. Actually, we did talk about it. Um, there's a Wally. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Uh, it's it's
1: bedtime at the
2: K.O. household. There we go. Uh, Hi, too. Wally. <laughs> um... <yeah. laughs> oh, look at the two of them making me feel old.
1: Yeah, see this is how we can like measure how long some film, film has been going on. Yes,
2: yes, exactly. <laughs> Precisely.
1: How old was Molly when we started? Um uh-huh. yeah, yeah.
2: Um, yeah but yes, was going to be coming
3: in asking for the car keys when and... we started. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. That's what I thought. Uh, that's what I thought. Um Okay, so we're we're um so what we had talked about yeah. was just having like a little almost it would look like a throwaway bit where we see a a young wolf get Morgoth's attention in some way and yeah. all that has to happen is for Morgoth to give him a give him a a, a wolfy treat, right? Right. And and that's it, that's all we need because right. then when we when we see him later on you know, so, and we could, we are could we gonna show in, adorable yeah. puppy Karkaroth. Is that Maybe, what we're gonna show? Like, like, L- ugly little, little puppy we Karkaroth do,
1: frisking around.
2: We could do ugly cute, yeah, yeah. Like, a, yes. like, this is it's not like it's not like glaron right? Like, he right. hasn't doesn't have to be like this elemental force of destruction in the same way. He is an elemental force of destruction, but even more like the Gamorg, right? <laughs> right. Right. The Gamork is totally my visual
1: model for, for Cockroach. I mean, there's, there's, there's no question about that. Um, Yeah. Okay. Um, So, right. We just have to show that there is a wolf, right? Um, And And maybe uh, a
2: scant mention in dialogue somewhere about two thirds of the way through the season about a, a new guardian at Angband or something like right. that.
0: That's... And
1: I think it's totally fine, as we mentioned last time, for Droglúin himself to be under the impression that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy. I mean, that would be the most obvious thing in the world to him, personally, right? Because yeah. he knows he's the greatest wolf in the world. Um, and who and... knows it?
2: He ran from him at the, at the battle,
1: that's exactly what Drauglun thinks about that. Right. You know, that it's, it's, it's obvious. So, um, so obviously Dragluin provides us with the opportunity to, um, be reminded of the Huan prophecy and, um, and but see it unfulfilled in Drauglun. But see there, it's not a failed stratagem. It's like a foreshadowing, right? That Drauglun is not the greatest wolf in the world. Um, and a sort of satisfyingly humbling moment for Drogluin as he is defeated uh, by Huon. And I mean, I would be totally fine, by the way, in how that's depicted for us to build this up. Right. Um, the viewer has every reason to think that Drogluin is the greatest wolf in the way he's the father of werewolves. Like, that's how we've depicted him all along. I would really kind of like this scene if it looks like Huon is sacrificing himself for Luthien. And Baron, right? Um, he's going to fight Dr. Lewin, knowing Dr. Lewin is, in all probability, the greatest wolf in the world. He's so he Huon has certainly never met a greater than Dr. Lewin, right? Um, so even Huon himself might be under the impression that yeah, that prophecy probably getting fulfilled right now, right? But I'm doing it anyway because that's the kind of, you know, wolfhound I am, right? And then it turns out he wins which is a kind of a, a twist. It's a surprise to everybody, right? So there it's a twist which sets up the final confrontation. And it should, I would think, it should build some kind of dread, right? Like, okay, the prophecy, we've brought up the prophecy enough time in this season to know like, it's now officially like Chekhov's gun, right? The greatest wolf in the world is going to come out at some point during this season. And if it's not Dragluin. When is it? So we're going to start looking for the greatest wolf in the world, you know, like behind every, (laughs) around every dark corner for the rest of the the episode. And we don't have that many episodes until we get there. But I like that as a setup for the reveal of Karkaroff.
2: Yeah, which is why it's important to tease Karkaroff before any of that comes up. Before any of that language comes up at all.
1: Right. If they were paying close attention, they will have seen... They will have reason to anticipate what it could be, but they could miss it. But
2: there's a very, very good chance that the majority of the audience would would miss it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And by the way, just the idea, emphasizing the idea that um, Morgoth is feeding it from his own hand, right, and you know, therefore implicitly you know, feeding his power into it um, is a good thing to establish, right, that this is not just he went out on safari until he found the greatest wolf and brought or or like it's some kind of coincidence, right? This is definitely Morgoth's work uh, in place here. Um, In a sense, by the way, notice another thing. Um, This fits the pattern that we've shown again. We didn't even do this on purpose, but it fits the pattern again and again that we've seen of Sauron doing something evil and interesting and complicated and cool and Morgoth coming along behind him saying, I'm going to do that except times five and cruder, right? So instead of the father of werewolves, right, which Sauron has organized, uh, and the whole werewolf thing, which he's going to be like, no, instead I'm just going to build giant manic monster wolf, right? Um, who will be greater, like less interesting, but greater than Drogluon, right? Not a lieutenant, um, but just a thug that I keep by the door, right? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's yet another example of that um, differential that um, uh, that we've shown again and again uh, between Sauron and Morgoth. That's kind of fun. Okay, and then the eagles show up. Karkaroth is going to run off first, right? He's going to ingest Silmaril. How are we going to... What are we going to show? with Karkaroth's response, I mean, how do we have Karkaroth? So Baron holds out his hand. Karkaroth eats it, right? Baron collapses to the ground, bleeding profusely. Um, uh,
2: Probably screaming.
1: Probably screaming. I'm not, so I'm not worried about what Baron is doing. His, his, he's got a relatively uh, foreseeable script at that point. Right. Um, (laughs) But what But what does what does Karkaroth do? Like, do we have him like he swallows the hand and then what? Like, how long does it take before, like, Silmaril heartburn kicks in? And how does he react exactly to it? And there are two reasons why I ask this. One is that if we're not careful, that could look really silly. Right. Mm. Could look really hokey, especially since he can't communicate what's going on in his stomach. Right. So just like I'm standing here, I've just swallowed something. And now all of a sudden I'm going to start freaking out and running around or I'm going to howl and run away. It's not obvious from the outside. what's going. And this is again, this is another thing in a prose account. The narrator can just tell us what is going on inside, literally inside Karkaroth. Right. But we're not going to see it right you know it's it's you know wolf has bellyache, doesn't show from the outside all we'll see is him running off and the viewer would be like what just happened why do he run away like that doesn't well, even make sense right yeah
3: I, th- there's there's things we can do i mean one you okay. asked the question you asked the question how long does it take before the reaction no time at all because otherwise baron and luthien are in serious trouble like right, the wolf yeah, exactly. needs
2: to yeah yeah, yeah. It, and, it has to take some to, like Mm -hmm. there has to be at least a moment where he backs off because you have to show like we have to see Baron and luthien right? right like we we have to um and Philip and is of course also
1: suggesting, you know, a little bit of suspense would not be a bad thing. You know, uh, like a, enough yeah. of a delay that it looks like he's going to have a chance to savage the both of them as Baron is writhing and bleeding, and Luthien is trying to staunch the arterial bleed from his wrist. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but yeah, but then like when it looks like he's going to, then yeah, yeah. okay.
3: Sorry. And then for, as to your second point of how can you tell that a wolf is suffering internal anguish and pain like dogs yelp when they're in pain Mm
1: -hmm. um
3: i don't know if you've ever heard a dog that um had an electric collar on and went outside its range and didn't understand how to come back inside the range right you can tell what's going on with that dog right even if you are not the person who put the electric collar on it you know exactly what just happened there so basically Karkaroth starts acting like he's getting zapped by an electric collar and everyone gets that maybe eating the Silmaril was a bad idea for him.
2: Right. right. So there's a couple of other things too like visually the Silmaril might be glowing bright enough to see it through the body. Could we see it? Yeah. Also I mean not we could we could see inside the body if we wanted to. We could get a shot of the inside. It's done. I'm not <laughs> saying that that's the optimal thing to do, but you definitely could do it, and you could see the simuril burning the flesh inside.
1: Um, yeah, I like... Uh, it's, sorry, is that, is that Brian? It, that's Brian, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I thought yeah. so. Um, yeah, Brian was suggesting uh, that uh, he belch... Silmaril flames and, you know, smoke pouring out of his muzzle uh, would be a thing. Um, It's possible to do. So So here's the other reason that I'm uh, that I think it's important how we set this up. Right. It's not only important immediately in the sense like we need to make sure everybody can follow what's happening here. Right. Um, Because he swallows the Silmaril and, you know, goes insane. For people who haven't read the book, that's not necessarily a hundred percent obvious. But, but the second thing we have to set up what comes later. Like, why is yeah. Karkaroth running through the land with the Silmaril in his belly such a big deal, right? Um, yeah. In fact, it's even it's one of the things. I think it's on my short list. On my short list of I, Tolkien is very good, at um, so you remember the distinction that Tolkien makes in on fairy stories between secondary belief and willing suspension of disbelief. Right. He says, you know, yeah, it's it's not that willing suspension of disbelief isn't a thing, right? But if you are consciously suspending your disbelief, then that means the art has failed. Right? I mean it's it's like you can do that and you know, a thing can survive that, but that's that's what failing look that's what failing looks like, right it, it The story should enable you to invest secondary, it's not primary belief and actually confusing it with the real world, but you're able to enter into that world and go with it, right rather than saying like, "I don't think that works at all, but I'm going to let it go." right Car- The statement that of all of the terrors that came from angband. The madness of Karkaroth is one of the greatest, is on my short list of statements in the Silmarillion that I have to recruit disbelief. To, I, I've never gotten it. I've never in I've just never intuitively understood why why. I mean, okay, like he's huge. A huge carnivore with a Silmaril burning in his belly, but like, seriously? That's like, how does that even compare to Glaurung? Right? How does that compare to, like, ba- Balrog-led armies? Like, just it's, it, get out the way. <laughs> like, it's, I don't know, climb a really big tree. I don't know. But anyway, like, my point is, we have to, like, the, the, the book asks us to imagine. This is, like, a, 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 a disaster, like a, a, a threat of, like, you know, continental proportions. Karkaroth with the Silmaril in his belly so this is the first glimpse that we have of it on the one hand. Yes. It's like immediate function is that Baron and Luthien aren't going to be killed on the spot. Right? Like, so it's it's immediate narrative function is he's going to run off. He's distracted by the fact that he's now in agony. Um, but it goes from, he's in agony to, Oh, and by the way, he is one of the greatest threats that Beleriand has ever seen. Um, how what does he do how does he do it what does it what is he what can he what does he accomplish if we're gonna ask the viewers to believe something like that we have to show them something like what do we show him what does he do what does maddened Karkaroth accomplish prior to the wolf hunt
3: I mean we can definitely show him tear some elves apart if that's what we need to do
2: Action. Actually we can we don't have to wait that long. Okay, so presumably the gate to Angban is guarded at some level, right, by more than just Karparov. Um there's probably orcs there at the gate. Now of course they don't stop Baron and Luthien from going in, you know, they don't stop because Baron they're in and disguise. Luthien they're yeah. in disguise right and then they yeah. it, then um luthien puts karkaroth to sleep that could include any soldiers outside as well mm-hmm. um and so when they come when they go to get out he's like karkaroth wakes up and but the confrontation happens before all all the orcs are able to get their themselves back together
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so after Karkaroth swallows the Cimmerill, the orcs start approaching, presumably to e- either, you know, watch Karkaroth finish off the job or finish the job themselves or take Baron and Luthien, the, Baron and Luthien into custody, whatever it's going to be. And Karkaroth immediately, like, it, you know, starts, like, losing it, right? Yeah. And just rips them apart, right? Mm-hmm leaving them, their bodies, sm- not just torn, but smoking, right? Like, like smoking from the, from the burning of the symbol inside it. And so that, w- w- like, we can show right away what's going on so that when we hear about the calamity that is Karkaroth mm-hmm. Kar- roaming throughout the land, we, we have firsthand knowledge of, it. we don't have to do some sort of like weird, like we're telling you about this thing. And so now we're going to show you this thing to drive the point home or anything. We, we know that that's a possibility.
1: Okay. So hang on. I should have established this earlier. How um, tall is Karkaroth at the shoulder? How big is Karkaroth? Six feet at the shoulder? Eight feet? 15 feet? How big is car feel like
2: 15 feet, is, 15 feet in the shoulder would put him like the size of a city bus. That might be a little, yeah. little too big.
1: Yeah. Well, right? you know, I, I probably. I agree. Um, so, like, is he the size of a bull? Is he the size of an elephant? I would,
2: I would say he's about the size of your average white work van.
1: Okay.
3: He's larger than Huon.
1: He's larger than Huon. And Huon we have cast as an Irish wolfhound. So like Correct. the high end of dog normal is how we've how we've mm-hmm. cast Huon. Um, right. So right, not um, um not elephant sized. But something yeah. like bull sized could work.
3: Maybe the part of the thing is if it's a fantastical creature, you can make it any size you want and people's sure eyes will accept it when it looks like a wolf or looks like a dog there is a limit before your brain immediately is like that's too big and it looks right. fake
1: yeah, we don't want them to look like quifford the big red dog uh, yeah yeah that, uh,
3: i guess that's where i was headed but mm-hmm, I, I know mm-hmm. they ran into that problem with game of thrones with the dire wolves they they wanted to do things with them that weren't working and part of it was because the size was they were too issue. big
2: yeah. There yeah. there may be this may be part of the reason for the hygienizing of the wards in the Lord of the Rings films. Uh, right. because just upsizing them wouldn't really quite they'd look cute, right? If they were just wolves. Right. Um I have I have an idea and I think we've talked about this before, um, this particular creature um yeah that's it okay hang on um andrew sarkis andrew sarkis um Mm. let me yeah yeah remember andrew sarkis yeah Yeah.
3: we we use him back in season one but the thing is i didn't think we really wanted prehistoric stuff still around when we have elves on screen
2: it no no my point is to change the proportions Mm. Um, so
3: carcaret doesn't look like a wolf he looks like a, a mutant deformed monster yeah yeah yeah. yeah yeah
2: yeah
3: that's how i
0: that's kind of a, yeah andrew sarkis i remember him that that's how i envisioned him as well it's sort of like like a way too big head and a,
2: right a, a yeah the skull head. is really the the differentiating um um the yeah. differentiating factor
0: yeah I'm that's a to... good i like that image
2: um, yeah. Um,
1: huge, huge and mutant, but again, not so huge that it's going to look like, you know, that, um, uh, who is going to look like, you know, yeah. a sheepdog nipping at the heels of a cow or something like that.
0: Right. Also, like we, don't, we don't want to also like, I, you, now that you've said it, Corey, this is really stuck in my brain of like, how is this guy worse than all the other things? <laughs>
1: That's always been my question. Okay, we've bit- got dragons. We've got Balrogs. We've got, but no, like uh, Wolf with Silmaril in his belly. Um, and so yeah, this is one of the reasons I'm asking about his size though, right? Because mm-hmm. his size will, so, okay. Like again, Karkaroth's coming, right? The wolf is on his, what do you do? Right? What do you do? Glaurung is on his way. Unless you're touring, you can't do anything but flee, right? Like, the idea of doing anything but, like, trying to get away. is. What happens with Karkaroth? What, do you shut the door? No, I'm serious. Like, I, I don't mean to just diminish it, but, like, you've got a wall. You've got a 30-foot stone wall. What's Karkaroth going to do? Right? Silmaril in his belly or not. Yes, he's being tormented. Yes, he's a large and quite ferocious creature, and I wouldn't want to meet him in a, black, in a dark alley. But worse than Gwail wrong Really?
3: Like, it, it's... Well, Gularam never made it into door yet.
1: Agreed. That's interesting. Right. So we will see him crossing through the girdle. Right. Yeah. And that was so. And that's one of the cues that we get. Right. But again, all we get is this blanket statement, like of all I, I the know. terrors that we, we get, you know, that, you know, and I'm like, OK, we, no, we don't necessarily have to push that button if we don't want to. Right. We could we can just kind of sidestep that and not go necessarily in that direction. JJ had a really interesting idea, um, which is what if there's actual fire involved? Like what if he like we actually see fire? What if as he's burning on the inside, like what if he's actually setting fire to things as well? You know, like what if he's um, not just leaving a, a, a trail of like dead people who happen to get in his way. Again, this is another reason, though, why I'm not, like, as terrified about um, Karkaroth uh, as I am about... Uh, because he's, like, insane, right? I mean, like, he's not even going to hunt you down. Like, it kind of seems to me like, all you got to do is sidestep and get out of the way, and he's going to carry on running, right? I mean, like, he's 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 not going to stalk anybody. He doesn't have time to stalk anybody. He, he can't... He doesn't have enough wits to stalk people, He's just yeah. going to, I mean, yeah, if you're in his way, he's going to mow you down, right? Because um, he's, he's in a very, very, you know, very destructive headspace right here. Um, if he's big enough, we could have him even wreck buildings, right? But the idea of him setting fire to things is kind of fun, right? To show mm-hmm. actual mm-hmm. destruction behind him, right? But that could come off looking really funny, too. So I don't know.
2: It's it's not that he's breathing fire. It's that there is like he's not doing he's not doing fire damage. He's doing radiant damage, right? Right. And so being done
1: to him as well. Right. Um, Yes. So it's collateral radiant damage. Yes. Right. Yes.
2: Um, Which is the best kind, right? (laughs) Best Um, kind of
1: radiant damage,
2: absolutely. (laughs) Um. So I would say that anything that he gets his mouth on is getting burned, right? So we're seeing like a smoldering ruin in his wake, mm-hmm. not necessarily flames, um, right. but just things getting that are getting. It's it's like a almost a white heat, right? Like so, it's
3: so the stump of Baron's hand is cauterized, right?
1: preventing the awkward like I'm having Arterial to put a spray. tourniquet on his wrist <laughs> while being carried by an eagle. Yes. yes. Yeah, I like that. That's good. Cauterize the wrist.
3: That's that's a that, that's a good move. So yeah, so if we see the burn damage from the original bite. Right. Because as soon as he's getting bitten, that Silmarill's in contact with Garcroft's mouth, so. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um what if the what if the trail transforms him somehow?
1: Yeah, if there's some kind of change here, again, he's not just a very large, very mean dog who's in a lot of pain and therefore likely to lash out if you get too close. Like again, like this is this is the thing that I'm having a hard time with. Right? It's got to be what more. If he's than
0: just that. like a? What if he's just like a running giant napalm? He's you can't just, even see what he is. Yeah, like, he's just setting everything on fire. It, like a I, giant fiery if, monster if we
1: want to go with the and especially the fact that he is just like on the loose has no plan is running mm-hmm. everywhere and like setting fire to everything fits that you know that that mm-hmm. that, that would fit that sentence right about yeah. uh you know his superlative
0: as far as threats to emerge you know to like, uh, come like i think it would have man. to be it's it kind of almost has to be like that. Like he is a walking weapon of mass destruction. Just like that would be the thing that would differentiate him uh, from, say, Glaur- like Glaurung's Glaurung is capable of that kind of destruction, but he's just not going to. He's got an intentionality about him. Right. Right. But maybe Karkaroth is just literally people are looking at him saying, like, this guy might burn down all of Beleriand. Right.
3: And so. Like- If he doesn't stop
1: and there's nothing to stop him, he's going to keep burning everything.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So would we want to use like some kind of analogy with nuclear radiation to what he's doing then?
1: Well, that's Mm. interesting. So the problem is, and this is a problem. The problem with radiant damage, too, is that ultimately the light that's burning through him is a good light. Like it's not it's harmful to him. Right, just as it was right. harmful to Morgoth when he was holding the Silmarils in his hand, um, but it's not. It's not like if you stand near a Silmaril, you take, you know, radiation damage.
3: Normal. That's for, like, that's what I was wondering if. Like, are we going too far in one direction here? Because, like, the Silmaril is not a mini nuclear power plant that has. No, <laughs> it's not. It's,
1: it's it is tricky. It's it is tricky. I mean, the alternative would just be. Um, basically, just to kind of let that sentence go and not try to live up to that sentence at all. I mean, Tolkien really
3: liked his superlatives, and he did. He uses them all over the place, and if you try and make them all true all the time, it doesn't. Like, you know, who's older, Treebeard or Tom right. Bombadil right. or sure, you sure. know, yeah, whoever. Yeah. Like, everyone's the oldest.
1: Right. Right.
3: Yeah. And and no
1: one's yep. the second oldest. <laughs> Right. No, I mean, I think, like, the function of that statement, that statement does have a function in the story, though, right? The function in the story is, first, that when they hear about this, right, um, the hunt for the wolf is established, right? This is why Thingol and all of them can't just be like, well, not our problem anymore, right? Let's, uh, as long as we can... uh, as long as we can fend him off, right? Uh, as, long, as long as we have a big enough tree to climb, we don't have to worry about him, right? So we'll be fine. Um, th- you know, it's clear that something has to be done about this. Not you know for like the deliverance of Beleriand, right, from this horrible threat. So it plays a function in that way. We don't have to follow that, right? Like we can, we can, we can answer that question, like why do they take it upon themselves? You know, and and in a sense. The text also gives the answer to this, right? Baron knows the quest is not yet fulfilled, right? As soon as he hears about Karkaroth, he's like, okay, um, this is on me still, right? I have to finish what I started. And so we don't necessarily need more than that. And especially that can be done with great poignancy, I think, with him and Thingol, right? Because it's after the reconciliation. Um, So that's a really... um, The Hunt for the Wolf could be a very, very powerful... Uh, father-in-law son-in-law bonding moment right um uh, you know a moment even a moment of atonement on Thingol's part right where he is going to set out to try to set to rights a pro- the problem that he created right which is which is cool like i think that that could do that could do really well um but um uh
2: one thing I would say is that if he were if he were to be transformed physically, that it shouldn't happen right away. Like when we see him again, he should be like almost wasted, wasted away. Right, like he's been being burned from the inside for yes, however long it's been, right. Yes. Um but um,
1: um, the. Escalduin, right? Isn't the waters of the Escalduin that he? Is it the Escalduin Esgal- that he drinks and calms the? Um. What's the? Wh- where Where does he drink from to calm the fires in his belly? Briefly before the, before the before the fight, um. I'm I'm. Not sure I'm getting that straight in my head, but um. But my question is. What do we do in that scene like so again, one option would be if he's transformed in some kind of fiery radioactive vehicle of destruction, um his plunging himself into the river, his drinking at the river could like he looks like a wolf again, right, like briefly, like the flames are extinguished, and he looks like a wolf again, and that could be seem to be because indeed I believe that it, I don't think that it's merely the magical power of the you know random magical power of that stream right that causes this I mean it could be there's power being put forward there right um, sorry Karkaroth is, Karkaroth it is, is complicated it is Escalduin, okay. That's what I, yeah. that's what I thought, but I was, want, wanted to make sure I wasn't making a mistake there. Um, yeah, so um, maybe w- let's work backward from that final sequence, right? He comes to the Escalduin and he drinks from the Escalduin, right? Or he's immersed in the Escalduin. I kind of like the... Hey, hang on, let me go back to the map. Um... Well, he would have had to cross the Mindeb as well as, you know, this early branch of the Syrian up here. If he's coming down, right, he can, he can come down on the eastern bank of the Syrian. He's got to cross the Mindeb and then he gets to the Isgalduan in here. Um, but that's good. We don't have to show him crossing any other rivers. I'm just... Uh, Okay, just trying to picture this. Okay, so let's go with option one, which is the maddened wolf who's burning, but in a mostly non-visible sense. Again, like, the, that is the threat from Karkaroth is that he is a large, powerful monster who's now completely maddened and lashing out at everything that he sees. You don't want to get anywhere close to this guy. Um... um that's option 1 right the sort of not f- him not as like an obviously supernatural sort of phenomenon right he's just this is like maddened monster version of Karkaroth, right in that case we would show him drinking from the esgalduin and he would recover sanity briefly right we'd show him not being um not being as crazed as before and then we have the fight right in option two if we show flaming supernatural engine of destruction wolf right then we'd have to show him what getting quenched in a sense right like he'd be emerging from the as looking like a normal monster again Sorry. One of the things that I think is, um, one of the things that I'm working towards here, right, or that I'm, that I'm thinking through, is it strikes me that depending on how, what we choose for that first choice, it has a radical effect on his interaction with the Esgalduin, right? In option one, the Esgalduin helps him, right, and makes him a more formidable opponent in a sense, because it returns him to the ability to use his own wits and makes him a more cunning opponent in the end. That's why he kind of sneaks up on them. Indeed, that's kind of what kills Baron, right? Um, Whereas if we did the supernatural flaming wolf of destruction version that gets quenched by the Isgalduin, what we would be suggesting really Is some kind of supernatural intervention by means of the river, which makes him vulnerable and able to be attacked and killed by the wolf hunt. If you see what I mean. I mean, those are radically different effects that his interaction with the Isgalduin would create.
2: I feel like the latter is kind of implied by the story in a way because if you think about it if the if the water is somehow if any part of Almo is in that water then that puts kind of a buffer between the similar like physically puts a buffer between the simril and the inside of his body so he probably that seems likely to be why in the story he does get relief. Mm-hmm. um it does make sense, and it would it would give us, it makes it a little bit more believable that this thing that was considered more destructive than any other calamity, right, or at least in the top five, right, calamities to befall Valerian, could be slain by a person. Right, right, right.
1: Yeah, I kind of like the implication that if it had not been for the intervention by means of the river as Galduin, he would have destroyed the lot of them, right? I mean, we, he, he's going to kill Huon one way or the other, right? Um, the question is, does he, does he do in the lot of them? Right. Um, and as it is, he comes reasonably close to that, right? Um, I mean, things are pretty dodgy for a minute. Um, but I think... I like the idea of suggesting an intervention. Like It's almost like he's... Um, the phrase I wanted to use, I don't think it's quite the right phrase, but I think it conveys... It's like he's made mortal. Like he's... Um, When he's got the Silmaril, when he's burning with the Silmaril, um, you know, he's like, um, he's like Super Mario after getting the star of invulnerability, right? Just running through everything and destroying stuff. I'm not saying, Phil, that I'm suggesting we reprise that music exactly. Um, I'm just saying, uh... That strikes me as a kind of parallel here. Like, I mean, he just like nothing can stop him. Nothing. He just smashes through and everything and anything in his path, right? And then um, when he that when he drinks from the river, right, there is some intervention, and he's made vulnerable again. He's made into a um, merely a giant monster, giant terrifying but mortal monster whom Huan can fight. And kill, even at the cost of his own life, right? Um, whereas when he's in, you know, starve and vulnerability mode, not even Huan was going to be able to do anything against him. Um, I kind of like, um, right, JJ, again, an orchestral remix of that particular Mario theme, I think is what we're looking for. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, um, Brian's suggestion... About instead of having Karkaroth encased in flame, having him encased in smoke, is really interesting. Actually, um, one of the things that I like about that is the kind of the veil of mystery, right? Um, smoke pours from showing that he's being burned, explaining, you know, again as you say, Marie, we can we can demonstrate that he is in pain, right, while assuring our viewers that no giant monster wolves were in fact harmed in the making of this production, but. Um, we, but nevertheless, it also, you know, he is this, you know, surrounded by smoke and shadow, um, which is like, you know, almost like, it, it's like the the reaction, right? It's the, when the holiness of the Silmarils meets his, you know, darkened, corrupted flesh, uh, filled with Morgoth's power, there's this, you know, horrible shadow smoke reaction. And he's or steam. Also, or steam, it, it, both. It's yeah. more
3: volcanic situation instead of nuclear right. power plant situation. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes.
2: Yeah. Um, yes. If he just swallowed half this Gald- Galdun when they meet him, he's going to be giving off a lot of steam. Right. right? There would
1: be some steam involved. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, agreed, Brian, that the less we show of the monster, the more effective it will be. Um, yes but but if we do something of the like in that like in the invulnerability mode thing like when he is ploughing along he's he's not yeah he's not like a traveling nuclear reactor or something but he is um like violence is happening inside him right the yeah. violent conflict of the, and it just is flowing out from him and that's why like you can't nobody no one's going to stand there Seeing, you know, smoking, steaming, shadow and light, immer- you know, flickers of light and boiling shadow. Um, and I've, I have to imagine reek. I mean, it can't smell good. Right. Um, coming towards you and somebody say like, oh, there's a there's a there's a wolf coming. Get me a spear. Right. Like nobody is going to stand against that. And it he could plow through things. Um, and. uh and I could see fires being set, you know, like things burning after he goes through. It doesn't mean necessarily he has to himself be engulfed in flame, um, but, um, but they're being fires. Um, seeing we, uh, a, like the smoking ruin in... of a village in his, in his wake might not be a bad thing. But sorry, Dave, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, are we turning him into a Balrog? <laughs>
1: A little bit. (laughs) Look, uh, you know, okay. Shadow and Flame, I hear you. I hear you. Steam, right? Steam. um, uh, There are certain similarities. But there are certain similarities between, um, you know, there are certain similarities between, a lot, among a lot of, yeah, Tolkien's monsters in that. Order. That's true. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, right. And we don't want to confuse anybody as to why cockroach doesn't have wings, so we do need to be careful. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. I so was if we actually have,
2: just thinking about Balrog wings the other day as a. Um, because you, uh, in your other Minds and Hands series, you've been talking about the about yeah. Tolkien as the master of retcon. And as you were saying it, I was like, you know, our solution to the Balrog wings thing is one of the most Tolkienian things that we've ever done in this entire project. <laughs> it
1: so is. Yeah. The retconning of like how they did have wings, but lost them. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Like if, if he were, (laughs) if like, if he sat Mm -hmm. down, was like, okay, people keep asking me if Balrogs have wings and they clearly don't, but it's a really interesting thing that people keep bringing this up. So I should write this whole little extra story. And there it is.
1: Yeah, there it is. I agree. I, uh, I, I still love that. Um, That's still, I gotta be in my top five, like favorite, some film adaptation moments yeah, mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh yeah i think that's that's definitely up there um but uh okay okay so so we do the quenching in his Galduin thing um and that for a time turns i mean and it's kind of it's kind of interesting because we can show him as the fight is going on like more and more like the smoke will start there'll be more and more smoke coming right and 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 until finally He gets cut open and the smoke comes pouring out and then you lift out, you know, out of the smoke and char of his insides comes Baron's unburned hand, right? With the Silmaril Mm -hmm. still in it. And that would be real, you know, not only do you first show like, you know, you've got this flaming, steaming, shadowy, smoking dog and then you cut it open and you're like, well, there's your problem right there, right? And then it gives us a chance to show his burned out insides and then baron's uh, baron's fist in the middle I think is uh, i think I, th- I think that works really well okay okay all right so i think I kind of like the smoke thing I think we can make the smoke work and um, establish that he's basically unstoppable, shifting or reemphasizing at least the role of the Escalduin in his final defeat, I think is good. Oh, and by the way, this gives us an opportunity. We've got to... The, his getting through the girdle has to be a really dramatic moment, right? Um, uh, I'm imagining, by the way, <clears throat> a squad of uh, Doriath border guards, right? Mm-hmm. Who are seeing him approach. And doing a like, well, fortunately, he can't get through the girdle or else this would be a problem. Right. And then we show him coming through the girdle and just completely, you know, throwing them everywhere like like bowling pins. Right. Um,
2: Like people who laugh in a Jurassic Park movie, you know, they're about to get trashed by something. right?
1: Yeah, that's that's. And. If we don't show the one of the things that I really like about the idea of him being like physically, like visually encased in something, um, the smoke and shadow thing is that it enables us to sort of show the, the interaction, right? The interaction between him and what's going on with him and the girdle itself, um, and I I definitely want to show the light of the Silmaril shining through him most clearly in that we'll we'll show the occasional gleam of Silmaril light. Right. Um, but to have the glow of the Silmaril really brightly at that point and making it really clear, it's not just that he's really strong and covered with a particularly dark breed of shadow. Right. But this is the light of the Silmaril that's enabling this. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. Um, cool. Well, okay, that wasn't exactly what I was planning to spend. That wasn't what I was building up to. But that was still something we really needed to talk about in, uh, in this. So now let's look at our final three episodes. 11, 12, and 13. So episode 11 is the return to Thingol's court. Um, no eagles involved in this episode. The eagles are fl- flying off into the distance do we go over Gondolin? Do we. Um, does that happen at the beginning of this episode? Like, are they just. Do we end episode 10 with them being picked up off the ground and the eagles flying away, roll credits? Um, and then we begin episode 11 with, like, view of Gondolin from above, and then we, like, swoop down in on Doriath as we follow the eagles?
2: Uh, we probably don't need to actually. Show the transition from when they got off the Eagles and when they started walking mm-hmm. under their own power. Um, like, we could probably go from a shot of them passing over Gondolin mm-hmm. to a scene of them at the, you know, coming before Thingle, honestly. Like, right. that's. Right. Yeah. Um, especially if we're trying to get to the hunt. In that same episode.
1: Right. Right. Okay. Um, most of episode eleven seems to me pretty straightforward. We have him entering Doriath like I was just Karkaroth entering Doriath as I was just describing. We get the dramatic reconciliation of Thingol with Baron and Luthien, and that's important for like this is the this is the high point of Thingol's character, right? You know, this is the the arc that we wanted to give him, where he, he now he turns and he repents and he accepts them. And that I think can be very beautiful. And then he presides over their wedding. Love that, right? You know, we, we sort of, we see that happen. Um, I have one question. I have one problem that I don't know how to solve in episode 11. How on earth do we justify Luthien not going with Baron on the hunt for the wolf? Why does she stay home? PS I've never understood why Luthien stays home seems not like her
2: she's helping Melian repair here. the girdle
1: <laughs> right we've got we've got a, right, right. now there's a hole in the girdle right we got to go patch that um
0: can I, can I anticipate another topic sure pregnant pregnant with Dior pregnant
1: ah. so pregnant elf princesses are advised not to go on wolf hunts. <laughs> that's
2: true, but which can be done very quickly. Like all that has to happen is for for someone to trips say you to the can't halls go. Of the and... dead
1: are a okay. We oh, can't have. Oh her... no, yeah. that doesn't.
2: Yeah, no, that's yeah, terrible. It's...
1: Yeah, we can't. Um, we can't. Like, what are we going to keep Dior alive on life support while she's a corpse? Like, there's a. She can't take him have with to her. Be... She would
3: have to lose the first baby if we're going to do it that way, which is a definite Whoa, change to the story.
1: Holy cow.
3: Yeah. I don't think, I don't think we can do that. don't that's in the original story at no, all.
1: No, 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 um,
3: no. But yeah, Dior no. would be child number two in this case. The first yes. one Oh <laughs> Oh man. I
1: mean, on the one hand.
3: Wow, <laughs> Sorry, right. Dave. I knew that's not what you were trying to do.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I like it. Yeah. The uh, crazier the idea, the better. I say. <laughs> Oof. Um,
2: uh, it but it like it reflects really badly on her. It like it basically she allows herself to waste away into death while pregnant while her with her child. Her child. Yeah. Like yeah, that's a, not a good look.
3: It's Muriel Part Two.
2: It's worse than Muriel. Muriel, Muriel was nearly
3: there. stuck around until Finn was born. <laughs> <laughs> right,
2: right. Um, oh. Yeah.
3: Well, that's, I guess, the other way you that do happens. that is yeah. she sticks around until he's born, leaves Deer with Melian, and then dies of grief, just like
1: Muriel. In, in which case, episode 12 is like lots of time passes, and then me, like, me, and when she, she she says, Terry for me, and it'll be a while. <laughs>
2: <Right>? I, mean, <laughs> I guess yes.
1: it's. That's uh, not
2: the worst time passing that we have on this slide. I'm just saying. <laughs>
1: I disagree. But anyway, it's it's yeah. So no, I don't think we can do but but I agree. I mean, it, at least the she's pregnant is a reason, right? Um it's a reason. It's a reason. Um it's a reason with some serious uh implications, yep. right? That can, I,
2: can I, we can we put a pin in that as a possible Yes. Because if we, if we juggle some things around, that still works. You think it's so. on the table?
1: Okay. All right. If you think there's some other things that could come around to solving this problem later, then, then we can do it. I just wanted to observe. Yeah. We just spent, like, almost a whole episode with yeah. the, like, whatever dangers you go into, I'm coming with you, only to have her not come with him on the fatal danger that actually ends up killing him. Right? So.
0: <laughs> that, yeah, that is Of a, course, another solution critical. to this problem
1: is just let her come. Right? Yeah. I mean, like, let her be there yeah. at the hunt for the wolf yeah. is, the, is the simplest possible solution Oh, yeah.
0: Actually, that's a good... Like, there isn't a good reason why she doesn't go. Why can't but she we, go? Other than the fact that's that she has a
1: sandbagger, right? Because she's Luthien, right? So, like... Uh, right. She just doesn't does she get to let Karkaroth
3: kill Huan and Beren on well, her watch? She may not right. have been able to stop him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and yeah. if if you're hunting for a wolf in a large territory you can't get maybe they, to point B maybe by they bunny split sled. up and
1: she's not in the right yeah yeah, yeah. she's in oh. the wrong
3: party and i mean doesn't she's with a, her dad so that's he's with her Fingal dad they're having
1: fine. a they're having a bonding moment right right mm-hmm. why don't you
2: two go together and hunt over here well and Matt, i mean, and I, I will go
0: over here
1: Honestly,
2: that's way yeah. more dramatic if Fingle if Fingle comes upon karkaroth alone and baron like leaps of baron exactly leaps of baron twos out of Saves nowhere his
1: life yeah I know, right. absolutely absolutely how that works
2: i like that
0: also, I, I think it's credible that she can't stop him because he's Silmaril-powered. Yeah. I like if there's going to be something that where she's going to meet her match, it might be that, right?
1: It would be another way to indicate because there we see a clear before and after, right? Before the Silmaril, Luthien can just put him to sleep, right? NBD. But after the Silmaril, there's nothing she can do, right? And that helps it it couldn't... to
2: explain the before and after here she couldn't stop there's no way that she could stop him cuz he's not a conscious force in any way at this point she couldn't can't stop him without killing him right she can't stop Karkaroth is, without killing him and she's right.
1: that and she we've had her anti killing things
2: right, right. I, mean, I, I don't know i don't know picking up on her words of pity
1: to Karkaroth, right oh woe begotten spirit right she still has pity for him she right. doesn't want to
3: just blast him Right? right. Maybe she exactly. could do that.
1: Um uh,
3: she, she might feel more comfortable blasting him after he kills who on <laughs> Yes, <laughs>
1: Right, right. Um but um yeah, yeah. Um Right. Now Philip is right. Philip says that her going on the hunt means that her choice in response to his death gets actioned immediately, which is a, a, a good compression of the story. Um yeah. that is true. We can have we can have their you know her last conversation. We don't have to have Baron lingering on, right? Uh, and you know, for the trip back to Menegroth before he before he dies, she can just come to him right there, and they can have that conversation on the spot, um, which is everyone must admit more efficient uh, doing it that yeah. way. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that it seems to me the risk, the big risk, is that we're basically showing. Or at least it might look like Luthien failing, essentially. You know, like she she meets her match. She's 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 overcome everything, even Morgoth himself, right? And yet,
2: mm.
1: here confronted with the wolf, she loses, right? Um, you know, losing her undefeated record <laughs> throughout throughout the whole story. Um, but again, what we've seen is that although I can joke about her having an undefeated record, she's been. I mean, she's been locked in prison multiple times. What we've seen is her not willing to unleash her power destructively, right? right? Which has restricted her already on more than one occasion, right? So um uh Yeah, yeah. And exactly, Brian, I mean that's kind of what I'm leaning towards too. It does help to bo- to boost Karkaroth's um, resume right. as chiefest and greatest calamity of Beleriand, right? If even Luthien is not powerless but incapable of stopping him, right, once he powers up again. <laughs> um,
2: yeah. So, I would say our two major options at this point are either she's pregnant and we work out the details, or and so she doesn't go, or she does go and she's unable to to stop Karkaroth
1: mm-hmm.
2: in time or whatever to, before um, Baron leap of Baron's his last leap of Baron.
0: Right, right, yeah. Um, I like I like going can't stop him. I I feel like certainly conse- my favorite
1: my favorite vote so far. Yeah,
0: I feel like the consequences of that are better. They they boost Karkaroth, and they they introduce like tension and, and drama, like, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, she's met her match. I feel like her, any, anything where we contrive to, to get her to not go, I feel like ends up having unfortunate consequences. Like either she's not going, either she's abandoning Baron when she said she wouldn't, or she's making questionable choices as a mom. <laughs> right.
1: right, right, yes, yeah. Um, yes, Okay, so let's run with that for now, though, Nick, I'm still interested in hearing your other solution to pregnancy. It's still
2: that, well, yeah, I mean, it's just a a matter of of shifting things around um, so that, and the time that it takes for her to give birth would would put her departure off a little further. So that's all, that's all that that would do.
1: Okay, well, all right, so, but let's move forward. Episode 12. So Mm -hmm. now we're, penultimate episode of the season. Um, This is the Mandos episode. Mm -hmm. She goes away. Um, He dies. He waits for her like she asks him to. Um, And again, there, I think, one small point here. I think it has to be clear that this is Baron's will. Yes. Right. This is not like she cast a spell. And as a consequence of her power, he is, she's not like pulling in a on him. Right. Right. And like dooming him to unlife until she fetches him. Um, now, obviously that's a kind of a grotesque caricature of it, but, I, but I, 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 I'm, I'm just saying, I, I think it's really important that he is the one she asks him. Right, she asks him to wait for her, and he does. And you know, we see him. To, we can even, there can even be reason to think, um, there can even be reason to think that, or when we're when we see him in Mandos, that he's. Mandos can deviantly. say that he refuses to go. Right. Exactly. Like it's, um, he's not doing what normally happens. Like, there's, 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 there's a deviation of the system here. Something is happening here that, you know, Mandos is like, we got a red flag on this situation here, right? Um, something, something, something strange is afoot even before Luthien shows up. Now Luthien shows up. Um, and, of course, this gives us the opportunity to reprise the scene from the beginning of episode one, right? Mm-hmm. Where we go back into Wraith World Vision, right? And we see yeah. her spirit leave her body and then we see one of the, you know, angel of death yeah. spirits, right. Yeah. Come and bring her, escort her back to Mando's. So we know that that's, so we don't want anyone being like, how did she get to Mando's? Did she sail in a boat? Like we've already established the whole spiritual journey thing at the beginning of the, of episode one. So that's awfully convenient. Um, and then, um, so she appears now before Namo and she sings her song. She sees Baron, she sings her song. We meet Deadway again, right? Deadway is there. Um uh uh looking on, we had talked about the possibility of that. Our uh, our our that like one of the elves that she freed from the yeah. you know, the the pot of evil, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And um She sings her song. He gives the choice. She chooses. Mortality. They. One of the things. Let me explain why I'm pausing here. One of the things that I find really interesting about the Baron and Luthien story at this moment. And some of the discussion on the discussion board was kind of hinting at this issue also. It is very unapologetically Luthien-centric, right? The story, as it's told in the published Silmarillion, really only cares about what happens to Luthien, if you see what I mean. The story barely asks the question, what was Baron's experience? What happened with Baron when he came back from the dead? What was his experience like exactly, right? Um, What did he choose? He chose, right? You know, she's making a request. Send us back. Baron is presumably on board with this. I'm not trying to imply that Baron's being dragged back into life, kicking and screaming. Um, but the emphasis is all on Luthien's choice, right? Again, it's a very elf... Like all of this Silmarillion, it's very elf-centric, right? It's very natural that it should be. I'm not, I'm not criticizing it in that way. But I am saying... Baron's experience, Baron's perspective, Baron's choices almost unrepresented at the end of this story. Um, There's barely even a gesture toward what Baron is going through, what Baron is thinking, feeling, choosing, acting throughout all of that. Um, After all. Returning. To the world not an obvious it's not a no-brainer that's a, a win. You know what I mean? Like resurrection. All it's cracked up to be? Only if the avoidance of death is an unqualified good thing. Which we know it not to be. Right? So much of Tolkien's story, the Numenor story, the Ringwraith story, right? The, butter, the Bilbo butter scraped over too much bread story shows that, like, the mere continuation of life, the mere rejection of the ability to reject death and return to life, not the end goal, right? Not the fulfillment of the human purpose. Baron's still going to go where mortals go. He's going to be delayed a little bit, but he was on his way, right? Um, I'm not saying what does Baron get out of this because it's obvious what he gets out of this. In one sense, it's obvious what he gets out of this. But the sense in which it's obvious is a I don't know, kind of limited one if you see what I mean. I've never talked about this before. I've never really fully thought through this before because, again, the story is so insistent on the Elvish point of view and the point of the story. It's so clear from the context of the Silmarillion story. When I'm talking about the Silmarillion story, I'm talking about what the story emphasizes, which is what a big deal it is that Luthien chooses mortality. The choice of Luthien is the huge deal. Right? But what's Baron's, um What's Barron's choice about? What does Baron choose? to be is there a sense in which his return to life is actually a sacrifice on his part not a sacrifice in the sense of like oh man this is really going to be a drag but I'll put up with it right I don't mean that exactly but it needs should he be older when he comes back I think he should be changed, don't you? Mm. But that's a good question. How is he changing? Right? How is he changing? I mean, that is, we don't, we have no other Tolkien examples of a resurrected human, a human who dies and just comes back to life. I don't think, I think Baron is unique in that regard. Um how does he change? how is he he's got to be different right It can't just be like it, it can't just be like in d and d right where you heal their wounds and then they pop up and they're as good as new right right back to where they start you you know you cast the you know raise dead and heal their wounds and back to normal right it can't be like that um Brian, at the very least he has to be like Frodo in the sense of being changed and not exactly like Frodo. Cause it's not just about like a, an unhealed wound in Baron's part. Though again, Brian, of course, the really compelling thing is that Frodo is compared to Baron, right? Like Frodo's wounding is compared to Baron's wounding, right? Um, so there's a very active Baron Frodo parallel that's established in the Lord of the Rings. Um, To me, imagining Baron... The problem I'm having, Brian, is I'm trying to imagine Baron delivering Frodo's speeches, right? Baron saying the things like, you know, I wanted to save Doriath, and it has been saved, but not for me, right? Like, that doesn't feel right for Baron's experience here, right? Um, No, because he he
2: goes to live for a while. He hunts down the dwarf army. Like, there's a whole lot of... Stuff that happens. stuff that he's still
1: going to do, yes, yes, and also I don't want to lose the fact that what he is being restored to is a life of bliss, right? I mean, he yeah. and Luthien are going to go off and live like a little Garden of Eden existence together, right? Um, in uh, you know, in quasi isolation, but but it's going to there. He is being restored, to, so this is why I've, I, as I said, I think it it feels weird to even suggest that his choice is an act of sacrifice. And yet, here's, here's the reason that I, that I kind of come back to this. Um, come back to this idea of sacrifice. I gave a talk on uh, Gosh, I don't remember what the technical topic of the... I was talking about, but I, 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 I gave a Baron Luthien talk. Where was it? At textmoot? on the first text we ever had. Um, And in that talk, I was asking the question about escape from bondage. Like, in what sense is the story of Baron and Luthien, at the end of the day, a story about release from bondage, right? What bondage ultimately, who is being released from what bondage at the end of the day in that story? And at the end of the day, like where that story ends, which is not ending with dwelling upon their life together in their quasi identic existence afterwards. That's a coda that we learn later. Right. Um, what we see is Luthien alone of the Eldar being freed from the circles of the world. What she, if she escapes Anything, If she escapes anything, what she escapes is immortality. And I, of course, I think about Tolkien's words about like, you know, the 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 great escape, the escape from death. Right. And how elves would tell stories about the great escape from, uh, you know, immortality, basically. Um, yeah, that's like the Luthian
2: story. Escape from a life of etern- almost eternal invisibility. Yes,
1: from having your heroa consumed and lingering on as long as Arda remains, becoming increasingly only memory, which is increasingly sad memory, right? Yeah, Yeah. Luthien escapes. This is why, if it's a sacrifice, even though what he's going back to is is all good. It's all good, right? What he goes back to is all good. Um, But... Baron tarrying at the door, you know we pictured the this actual door, right, like the door that the human souls pass through, and the elves don't know it's on the other side right to try to um um to try to sort of visualize that right what's on the other side of that door on the other side of that door is where humans are supposed to go It's the destiny of humans right there, right. The reception, like receiving the gift of a Luvatar. there it is, and he says, "No, no, hang on to it for a while. I'm, I'm, I'm not done. I'm gonna stay until my job is done. Then we'll go." Mm-hmm. Right. And again, I, I wonder. Um, one of the things that I was um, suggesting in that talk I gave was that the kind of tragedy of Luthien. Like, the way it's kind of couched as tragedy, right? It's not tragedy for Luthien. It's tragedy for all the other elves, right? They have lost her whom they most loved, which is sad for them, right? But I'm not convinced that's sad for Luthien, right? Um, and, yeah, Brian, exactly. He's Baron is postponing his rest. It's not the world's biggest sacrifice, but there's still something sacrificial in that, right? <laughs> in the sense of, like, his work is not done. He and Luthian still have an end to achieve. They need to have kids so that the line of Luthian can continue through mortal kind. That's a big deal, right? There's a big future destiny attached, you know, uh, to their children, right? There is, there is a blessing to the world that is going to come through them, and it hasn't happened yet. He still has work to do. And so he... He listens. Um, And... uh, Anyway. I don't know how much of this we can do. But I do think one of the things that's going to be really challenging is that I don't think we can just do the 100% elvish point of view ending that the published Silmarillion gives us to this story. Which is all about how the elves who are not Luthien feel about this whole situation and it's very understandable that they should feel about criticizing them for feeling the way that they do but that's not necessarily our story right um ah brian says sounds like a job for the frame that's very interesting brian that's very interesting um, kind of
2: contextualize we could, that
1: yeah yeah we could play on that in some interesting ways in the frame especially in this frame but um Anyway, we don't have to solve all the problems here. This will can you know, we can come back to this as we get there in the episodes. Right. And as you guys are thinking through the scripts, but, um, yeah. but I think that, um, how we handle at the very least Baron can't be a passive participant in this whole situation, right? He's standing there waiting. Cause Luthien told him to, she does her thing. She makes the choice. And he's like, well, guess we're going back to live because Luthien, that's the bargain she struck with Mandos. And I'm along for the ride, right? So resurrected I go, and then I'm going to die and then I'm going to be dead again the second time, right? Um, That's, um, we can't have Baron be, uh, you know, riding along in a little sidecar next to Luthien's motorcycle throughout episode 12, right? Like, that can't. We can't do that, um, and therefore, what he's choosing there has to be significance to his choice, right um, see kanji kanji says Baron finds a portion of his rest in Luthien. I think kanji, that that might be actually exactly what I'm resistant to um Baron sees what does Baron have that no other of these characters that we're talking about here has? And the answer is mortality. He's a human. He's the only human, right? Once we kill off the rest of the humans in episode two, he's the only human in this entire season. Right? And so he alone is over there saying with a totally different perspective on what's going on. Right. And I think that one of the things that he's, um, the elves aren't going to get it. They're not going to understand. The elves never understand the relationship between humans and death. Right. One way or another. And we just had, did a whole thing in the athrobeth with him not understanding that. And we just recapped the athrobeth, Right. In, uh, in, with the episode with Sauron. Right, so we just kind of went there again. Um, all that stuff and about the destiny of mortals and everything like that should be pretty fresh in our minds. What should come here, I think, is being given the human perspective, and we know we know pretty clearly what the right human perspective towards death is, and it's the Numenorian one, right? That is the good Numenorian one, not the bad Numen... The Aragorn one, right? What we see... Aragorn's death in Appendix A is a, is the model, right? For how humans and death are supposed to be connected to each other,
2: right? Um, you see, Baron hasn't lived a full life. He hasn't. His job's not way... done. Yeah. Right. It's not, it's it's not that...
1: wrong for him. That, that's why... Exactly. It's... His choosing life is not like the Ringwraiths wanting to live or, you know, the late kings of Numenor wanting to prolong their lives, right? We do show that difference. It's clearly not in that category. And yet, it's not in that category, but it's um... But it is parallel. The choice, the active choice to say I'm going to choose to prolong my life is almost never a right choice. Like I'm gonna cho- I'm gonna, I'm gonna reject death and cling to life. Um, that's often not a good thing, right. JJ says Baron is the ring rates as they should have been. Uh, yeah, in a, <laughs> in a sense, in a sense. Um, yeah, he's he's um, he chooses. It, it's a good reason that he chooses. But again, we have to show that's a good reason. We cannot possibly afford to show if any human is offered a get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to death, you take it. Because that's exactly what the Rings of Power are. Right? A parent get-out-of-jail-free cards on death. And that's not a good thing, right? Um, but again, Baron's example gives justification, like, allows for rationalization from the people who are grasping at get-out-of-jail free cards as they approach death, right? Um, it's just, I, I think Baron's perspective, Baron's choices have enormous consequences for future storytelling, right? Um, and... Do, you, uh, yeah, do, do yeah. you think,
0: like, do the, the bad Numenorians do you think they, like, cite Baron later on?
1: I would think so. Yes, I would think so. I would think that would be one of the, like, when they still care about making excuses, when they're still looking to, like, talk themselves into it, it would be a thing they would do to talk themselves into it. Right? Be like, like our forefather Baron of old, I too have not completed, you know, my, like, there's still so much yet for me to do. Um, And so I must, as Baron did, make this choice to, yeah, I would totally think they would say that to themselves. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, By the way, here's another thing that's really easy to take for granted at the end of um, the Baron and Luthien story. Luthien chooses mortality so as not to be parted from Baron. Why does that come with resurrection? Why don't they just not go through the door together? Okay, bye-bye. You've chosen mortality. There's the door. Literally, there's the door.
2: Right. Um, he's probably wasting away here. Like, he's being pulled towards the door, like all human spirits are from the instant they die.
1: It is his choice to wait has to be something that is practical. Uh, there's something heroic and his uh, heroic and self-sacrificial and even just doing that. I agree.
2: And um, and that could be the self sacrificial component that, that we're that we're looking for is not necessarily his return to life, but his willful willful dalliance. Wait a second. In Mandos.
1: Yeah, hang on, I just thought of something. The only thing we've shown about human relationship with death was through Andreth, right? And her words mm-hmm. to Finrod saying you guys call it the gift of Iluvatar because you guys are clueless, right? That is not what is going on. Um, you know, you elves like to say that to yourselves, but that is not what death is like for us. Beren is the one who... So, Dave, again, I'm thinking about the connection to the Numenorean kings, right? And ultimately to, like, the Aragornian perspective, right? Um, which is... Beren's, like, the inventor of that. Like, that, this is what Beren discovers, Right. Baron's near-death experience, well, not near-death experience, very, very near indeed to death. Um, Baron's experience, what he learns is like the true nature of death, right? Yep. What he comes back discovering, and this, Brian, is how he's like Frodo, right? He's like Frodo in that he's, he, he wants to leave, right? He's looking forward to leaving, um, not because he needs healing. But we make Baron the first human who has, who does lay down his life, like Aragorn does, right? Once the second time, right? Once his job is fulfilled, right? Um, he is the one who paves that particular path of saying, now, Baron is the first human to understand, I mean, since the corruption, right? Since the early days. Uh, but he's the first one in the post Morgothian scenario who understands the f- sense in which death actually is. So he's the first one, Brian, not to fear death. The first uh, the first mortal not to fear death. Um, and thus we use his resurrection and his new... That's how he's changed, his post-resurrection experience. He now looks at life and death entirely differently and sees what no mortals that we've ever met in the series have been in a position to understand. And that is, holy cow, now I understand, in a way that the elves themselves didn't understand, death really is the gift of Iluvatar to men. And now I understand. It's like he finally understands the true meaning of Christmas at the end Mm -hmm. of the season. Except it's death that (laughs) he finally (laughs) understands. Um, And This also explains resurrection. Why? And that is why he's resurrected in the first place. Like, why is that? Why is that the outcome? Because not just because they need to have a baby, which is true, but because they, um, but because they, he needs to like, he has to understand this and also maybe transmit it.
2: Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I am liking this. I'm liking this. So,
0: so him coming back, he now becomes a messenger almost.
1: Yes.
2: He's Lazarus. Yes.
0: Yeah. 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 He's he is. He's Lazarus. He's
1: he's like um
2: And the Numenorians don't listen to him even though he came back from the dead.
1: Right. Yep. Well they do for a while, but they yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. But but yeah, no, exactly. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And um uh yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah. Yeah. Um so Lúthien But of course the elves don't understand it, right? Um yeah. nope. Maybe the resurrection is a surprise to them both. Maybe when Lúthien she thinks what say his saying yes looks like is that he'll let her go through the door with Baron, like he's yeah. standing right there. In fact, we can even visually say it could even look like he's waiting at the altar, right? And mm-hmm. she's gonna go to him, right? And then they're gonna go through the door together, and that's like the spiritual yeah. consummation of their marriage. That's what, like, that you know, so that could totally be what's in her head, right? You know, she's basically asking Mando's, "Let me go to him. Let us stay together. I don't want to go over there, and he's gonna go over there, right?" And then Mando says, yes, but you're going back. Um, I'm sending you back first. And then they would be like... You have to live
2: as a human first. Right.
1: Right. And then they would be like... You can't just uh, go directly from
2: being an elf to...
1: Right. To going Leaving the circles of the world. You need to live as a
2: human being first. Right.
1: Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And then neither one of them will necessarily know why. Like, understand what their new purpose is. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons why, again, like this answers another implicit question, which again, I think is a question, which is, it's easy not to ask the story of Baron Luthien feels so it's like, it's so compelling and it's so moving that it's, I find it, there, there's a lot of questions that like, when I, when I'm in this mode, thinking it through in the way that we are, I find myself asking that reading the book I never asked. Right. Um, so, for instance, here's another question that I never really. Asked. Why don't? Why do they do nothing? I mean, okay, they don't do nothing. They fight with dwarves at one point, right? Baron fights with dwarves at one point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they have a kid. Like, I'm not saying that's not important. We know that, you know, the line of Luthien, huge deal, all that kind of thing. But, you know, the two great heroes. Accomplish? Well, look at what they accomplished before. Now they've like been resurrected from the dead. It's going to be, and so what do they do? Like being given a second chance at life to fulfill a great purpose. They're like, we're going to retire and not have anything else to do with anything else that happens, pretty practically, pretty much from now on, with the one exception.
2: I, I don't like, know. It's works. it's 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 Captain America at the end of Endgame, right? Like <laughs> you know, like I'm I'm fine with that, you know um besides the the their existence is really what changes the world. the whole thing breaks reality in a way yes, yes, you know like and, and and I think in a way, this is a foreshadowing of what andreth was talking about that we're never actually going to show that the old it hope. can be broken, yes, yes it's like, I mean... We yes, are this talking is the way about a human
1: coming back from the dead. So yes, yeah. there is a certain parallel. There's a small yeah. number of uh, potential candidates that fill that role. And yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It is yeah. um it is actually easy. Again, given the um uh, the the rigidly elf centered perspective of the reaction to the Luthien story, it's easy shockingly easy to overlook the fact that, like, yeah, the rules of the universe were just broken in a way that's almost as big as the making of the world round when Numenor sinks. Like, that was a huge deal. Like, that, that, that her crossing over from one kindred to another and the... Um, this, by the way, is why I hate the uh like Arwen's brothers can still opt into you know mortality if they want to that's one of the reasons why I hate that so much because it cheapens this moment, I think really profoundly yeah. um but uh but anyway, um yeah, so um yeah, yeah, now uh Alicia is saying they never talk to any mortal again, right, yeah, it does say that we can deal with that though um. Uh, I, that could
2: just be happens like just because it says that that happens doesn't mean that there's some sort of
1: ban or I, I,
2: something. Yeah. I, I don't I don't remember. I could be misremembering it, but I don't think that there's actually some sort of ban on it. It's just what happens. Um, at least that's the way it's described that there could have been a ban, and, you know, like, but I don't think that it's I don't think it's something we need make a big deal out of.
1: What we yeah. certainly don't do, what it certainly shows and what, what, what we certainly can't do is put them back into circulation, right? You know, we can't have them going back and, like, you know, leading, you know, the armies of humanity or something like that, right? Um, But that doesn't mean that nothing that comes from them gets... Now, a question to answer, I don't know that it's necessarily actually even a season six question, necessarily, is, um... Why the Green Elves? Why Assyrian? Why? I mean, on the one hand, there's a certain geographical rationality to it, right? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a tolerably out-of-the-way place. But if we go back to the map, um, what about further south, right? <laughs> you know, um, go to the Bay of Balar, you know, turn left and then right, and go south till you run out of map there you go isolation right no problems um, if that's what you want Um, why do they choose to go among the green elves why do they why do they why that okay but I'll tell you what here's what we're going to do here's what we're going to do it's late and I certainly do not right now want to begin the question of what happens in episode 13 (laughs) Let us punt episode 13 to the next session. Um, oh,
2: man. Because, that sounds
1: wise. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Because And in and, and, and that context, we'll come back to the Green Elf question I was just asking. If we do some of those things that I was describing there in episode 12. So the big question. So I, let me just spell out for everybody. the. I mean, we were kind of talking about this before. And there's been discussion about this on the boards. But the, um, the big question is episode 13. What does it work? How does it work? What happens? Like, if, if, the, if they are resurrected in episode 12, the weird denouement that's barely described in the text is what we get for episode 13. How does that work? How do we make that work? What do we want to happen in episode 13? And how can we make the post-resurrection return of Baron and Luthien into Sorry. a satisfying conclusion to the arc of this, uh, of this season. Um, and that's a big question. So I don't, that's why I don't want to d de- I I mean, I think, hmm, yeah, so we'll see, we'll see what we think about that. Um, Anything else I say will be me actually starting to talk about it. So I'm going to leave it at we're not talking about this right now. Um, We will start this in our next session. Now, um, in our next... uh, uh, Oh, we've got other things. We'll get to these other things, too. What do we do with Dior, which will come up in the context of discussing episode 13. Um, Right, here are some of the other questions. And then the foreshadowing of the Near Knife, right? Okay, so these are... We'll come back to this stuff in the context of the other things. And um, so we were gonna start talking about the frame story. That probably won't happen in the next session, but that's okay. Um, The next thing that we will do once we finish just figuring out the end of this season, we'll be talking about the frame. um, And we've been planning since more or less day one of the like as soon as we thought of the idea of having a frame we decided what the frame of this season would be um so we've been meaning this to be the Aragorn and Arwen meeting in Rivendell uh from the very start um so we'll get to that Probably not in the next time. So the two things that I have to uh, to emphasize, one is that we'll do that the time after next, not next time. And the second is that next time needs to be delayed. Um, so I'm not going to be available on the 7th so, or 5th, um, which is the next scheduled slot two weeks from now. I've been lucky so far, but my luck has run out. Uh, so we're going to need to postpone following up to the next week, to May 12th. So, um that will be our planned next session, May, Thursday, May 12th at 10 p.m. Footnote, there is a non-zero chance that I can't make May 12th either, but I don't yet know for sure. I'm I'm trying to get out to North Dakota to help my son move. Uh, he's got to move out of his dorm room and into another dorm room and stuff, and I'm going to go out there to boy. help him. But, like, I can't even figure out when on earth that's supposed to happen. Um it's like uh, issues of being a a very out-of-state person at a state school where this school totally assumes that you're just driving in, you know, from Fargo up the road uh, to yeah. do this. And I'm like, no, yep. plane tickets are involved. Can we please figure out when move-in day is going to happen? Whatever. Anyway, so um, so I don't even know. It might be that week. It's possible it'll conflict with May 12th. I will, I will We will post notices about that, but... 12th, 17th, somewhere around there is when, uh, or 12th and 19th, somewhere around there is when we're um, going to when we'll we'll resume and do our next session and discuss the conclusion uh, of the season. I'm actually really I I like how this has worked out. I like really having a a whole time where we can, because it's not just going to be talking about that one episode. It's going to be thinking through the entire arc of the season, making sure that the whole shape works um, so that we can really, you know, backing up from it. And before we move on and just move forward, backing up from it and saying, okay, what are we saying in this season? Exactly. Like, how does the, how is this all meant to work? So anyway, that's what we're going to do. All right. Thanks very much, everybody, for joining us. Uh, And I look forward to seeing you. Whensoever that happens, I look forward to seeing you guys again. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for a fun discussion tonight. And we will see you guys in a few weeks. Bye now. And I will say thanks for listening and Godspeed.